At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. podcast the podcast for cryptids and their keepers that's us and if you're listening it's you too i'm alex flanagan and i'm addison peacock and this is the start of an era baby we're uh we're back to distance recording so it's not like a great era that's not really a celebratory thing um i mean like but it's you know it's it's another chapter it is what it is it is what it is um, so we we both did some traveling recently, and now we are again on opposite ends of the coast. Yes, although you were near me for, like, the briefest amount of crossover time. I was. I was. Uh, we were traveling to different and disparate locations, but fate brought us briefly closer together geographically. We're always close together emotionally. I am already very quickly adjusted to the Los Angeles weather again, which is to say that it is, like, 50 degrees outside, but I am freezing in my room. It is so oh, cold. Oh, no. I, I don't know if that's because somebody has their air conditioner on and it's somehow making my apartment colder, but I am huddled over a mug of coffee uh, oh, my goodness. between my hands and a sweatshirt. I am very cold. Put on some thick socks, woman. I, I should, actually. I have to unpack. I haven't unpacked yet, so I don't know where any of my stuff is. Ah, uh, that would do it. Thick socks are a bigger deal than you'd think. They are. You lose a lot of heat through your feet. You do, and your head. So put on a cozy beanie and some thick socks, and the rest of you should be pretty good to go. Ugh, that's true. Also, uh, I should I shouldn't go without mentioning that I am drinking a unicorn themed coffee right now, which I picked oh, specifically. <laughs> I picked specifically to fuel the podcast recording today to celebrate the momentous occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my diner mug, obviously, but it is filled with a drink I did not intend to make, so <laughs> I will not be consuming it at this moment. I understand. Also, the the unicorn coffee that I'm having is by Bones Coffee Company. If they would like to sponsor me, they don't yet, but if they would like to sponsor the show, I would love that. Here's the thing. If any coffee company offers to sponsor us, the answer is an immediate and resounding yes. Absolutely. We're both pretty big fans of that, of that stuff, of that sweet, sweet bean juice. Okay. Get that juice in my face. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Are you ready to talk about some... <laughs> Some cryptids. I am. I am ready. Uh, well, I would like to start by opening this up with a question, actually, for you, Edison. Oh. Uh, which is, what is your favorite Doctor Who episode? Oh, gosh. Um, it's uh, probably Planet of the Ood or Silence in the Library or Blink mm-hmm. or The Family of Blood. Okay, cool. I have not watched a ton of Doctor Who. I have watched enough Doctor Who to know that um, when you told me that I need to cosplay the 10th Doctor immediately, I felt that in my soul. And that's about it. Um, <laughs> that's like mostly my experience with Doctor Who, is I've watched a few episodes with you and Andrew, and it was a great time. A lot of the writing is really excellent. But I know for a fact that there is a Doctor Who episode, and one that you've told me about several times, about the, what, the Star Whale? Oh, the Star Whale! Yeah, um, and that actually is something that I was thinking about a lot as I was researching this week's cryptid. Do you have any guesses what it is? I t- don't know, um, but I do know that 
The Star Whale is one of the few episodes I like from an era about which I will not speak of that show. Uh, I also know that that story, that that episode makes me think of the Ursula K. Le Guin story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, because it is that. It is that. This is less the um, the Omelas side of that story and more mm-hmm. just like the actual Star Whale side of that story. So, is- so we are talking today about atmospheric beasts. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Do you know anything about atmospheric beasts? I, I know absolutely nothing about atmospheric beasts. That reaction was entirely based on context clues. <laughs> yeah, right? We are going to have so much fun today. They are wild. It mm-hmm. is actually insane. Uh, this is kind of a broad one. So there is some specificity within atmospheric beasts. Um, and we may get to that. We may not. I really don't know where this conversation will take us because there are a lot of little rabbit holes to go down. But we're going to talk about them sort of broadly as a concept and then see where we go from there. We may end okay. up on a specific kind of atmospheric beast. We may not. It's hard to say. But there is a lot of fun to be had here and a weird amount of sightings. Uh, just to sort of cover our basics, first of all, atmospheric beasts are exactly what they sound like. They are critters that are just up there in the atmosphere hanging out way up high in the air, um, in the proverbial sky ocean, if you will. And there are actually a lot of comparisons, both poetic and sort of biological, to ocean creatures when we're talking about atmospheric beasts, which is why the star whale felt like a particularly apt sort of entry point there. Yeah, I was at the aquarium on Monday. Very nice. Well, then you're ready to contribute. I'm ready. You did your homework and you didn't even know it. I didn't. I was actually immediately going to say early on in this that there was a massive jellyfish section of the aquarium and jellyfish do not look like real animals. Yeah, there's also a massive jellyfish section of atmospheric beasts lore, so we'll we'll get into it. I was really hoping you would say that. I just really quickly, really quickly, I want to say that I got to touch a moon jellyfish and they feel very strange and I liked it a lot. Okay, now I'm done. Very cool. Thanks for sharing. So atmospheric beasts are a really fascinating concept because they sort of touch on this intersection of a lot of different fields of like 40 and thought. So there is obviously a cryptozoology element to them. There's like an astrobiology element Mm -hmm. to them. There's a ufology element to them, obviously. Uh, A lot of intersection between like aliens and cryptids and like transdimensional weirdness versus like mechanical alien thoughts. We're really not sure what they are, like with many things. We are sure they're super weird. (laughs) And that's about as far as we get. But so many people have seen these things or can speak to the existence of these things that it makes for a really rich body of knowledge about these creatures that we simultaneously like don't really understand at all. There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of hypotheticals when it comes to atmospheric beasts, but we're just going to dive right in. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So coming to you straight from the old standby, the cryptids wiki. Atmospheric beasts are the strangest of the flying monsters from ufology, cryptozoology, and astrobiology. According to eyewitness reports, they are things that seem like living creatures, but they break all the usual rules that we apply to living things. They fly without the need for wings, and their bodies are only semi-solid, often partially invisible. Oh. Yeah. Many atmospheric beast sightings were originally classified as highly unusual UFO reports, in the sense of UFOs being defined as supposed alien spacecraft or machines of some other sort, not in the technical sense of being unidentified flying objects, which clearly they are. 
<laughs> Noted Bigfoot author Ivan T. Sanderson devoted an entire book to the theory that many UFOs are actually extremely low-density animals native to the clouds. Oh, boy. Oh, okay. One of the most famous atmospheric beasts is the Crawfordsville Monster, sighted in Indiana in 1891, which some researchers classify as a dragon. Now, the Crawfordsville Monster, and this is me going off script now, the Crawfordsville Monster is a really fascinating sighting because it deals with kind of a standard UFO sort of sighting where you have, like, two people who see something really, really weird and then tell everybody about it, and everybody's like, you were probably drunk, this is the middle of nowhere, like, you were definitely just out in a cornfield. Um, but then the like next night, this thing came back and over a hundred people saw it. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's really crazy. And we'll get more into the Crawfordsville monster later. But the sightings of atmospheric beasts kind of break the pattern of normal UFO sightings mm -hmm. because they don't really carry this element of like being taken to another place and experiencing things and then being returned like with a lot of UFO sightings, these are just kind of interactions people have in familiar territory with unfamiliar mm -hmm. things. So it's so you don't have the lost time. Yeah, and... exactly. Huh. I, I have to, for just a second, um, I have to, uh, oh, where am I? I'm down here <clears throat> in the bottom of a well, actually. Oh, no. I have to just, I feel obligated to say that some of, especially the older ones, because old-timey people in a lot of ways were bad at identifying things, mm -hmm. my first instinct is to assume that something was some sort of, like, hot air balloon or <laughs> kite uh, or... I, I would disagree with that based on the details of this specific sighting. Okay. Um, Consider, like, a rogue Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade float. You know, okay, let's talk about the Crawfordsville monster real quick, because okay. you need to know this. <laughs> Please, just so, shatter my skepticism. Yeah, so let's talk specifically about the Crawfordsville monster. The Crawfordsville monster is an atmospheric beast that was sighted over Crawfordsville, Indiana in 1891. The cryptid is told by witnesses suggests an otherworldly creature. Now, when we get into atmospheric beasts in the sort of abstract as a concept, we'll talk a lot about these creatures that are sort of ethereal, sort of cloud-like, that sort of are these shapeless or amorphous sort of things that can change their density and like exist in this very floaty sort of otherworldly way. Mm -hmm. The Crawfordsville monster is not that. Okay. The citizens of Crawfordsville described a violently flapping thing, quote-unquote, with a flaming red eye 20 feet long and 8 feet wide. Descriptions of the creature vary, with some accounts suggesting that it had no head, and others describing it as having glowing red eyes and hot breath. Accounts generally agree that it is a large rectangular creature, possibly eel-like in appearance, with several undulating fins down the sides of its body. No! <laughs> During during a reported second appearance, witnesses described the creature as writhing and squirming and producing a wheezing sound as if it were in pain. Oh. One of the strangest accounts was when a Methodist pastor named Reverend G.W. Switzer and his wife also saw the animal. The creature writhed as though in great pain, squirmed in agony, and sounded a wheezing, plaintive noise as it hovered at 300 feet. Well, I didn't know this was going to make me sad. <laughs> What is strange about the creature is that it has an eye in its mouth, three jaws, and appears to be a cyclops. It also seems to be eel-like in shape with feathery protrusions coming out of its sides and back. Okay, that's what's strange about it. I don't think it was a hot air balloon, but like, by all means. 
if that's what you want to okay. believe. Okay, 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 <laughs> okay. Okay, okay, okay. I'm just going to keep repeating okay until, I, uh, until I've gathered myself. Um, that doesn't sound like a hot air balloon. <laughs> it does not, no. Or a kite. I'm very worried about it. What became of it? Do we know? Because I think it was dying. (laughs) I don't really know. There's not, like, a ton of information on that specific sighting, and I didn't spend much of my time going into the Crawfordsville monster specifically, partially because it has so little to do with the rest of the atmospheric beast sightings. Like, that one is kind of an outlier in terms of just sort of, you know, anatomy and experience and just, general weirdness. It sounds like it was just some sort of actual giant eel that through unholy forces of some kind was either rent from the ocean or from up in the sky, way, way up in the sky, and therefore could not breathe whatever version of air it had down here. And that makes me very sad and very worried. Pretty wild. I just didn't know that I was going to be sad about an eel today. Yeah, no, well, I started off with Star Whale, so I feel like that was kind of a... Oh, God. I I cried. When I watched that, I wept openly. Mm-hmm. Here we are. Yeah. Um, Here we are. Um, all of these atmospheric beasts kind of have a very Doctor Who sort of en- energy to them. Like, mm-hmm. they just kind of exist in that strange, spacey... Like, I, I, I don't well, know. It's, it's a really weird little segment of cryptozoology and it's very fascinating we've talked about before the comparison between space and the deep ocean i know i think it's very very exciting to have something like this that sort of really leans into that overlap yeah which is one reason why i got so excited when i saw this come up because that comparison is really really prevalent in every discussion of atmospheric beasts that comes up so let's talk a little bit more about atmospheric beasts in the general sense Okay. Um, For those who believe, atmospheric beasts are very fragile and lightweight creatures who are either native to Earth or are aliens that came from elsewhere. If the latter view is taken, then atmospheric beasts are sometimes thought to have originated in the atmosphere of some other planet. But they can also be thought of as originating in interstellar gas clouds that they are, in effect, aliens without a native planet, able to swim through space. Believers generally consider atmospheric beasts to be non-intelligent, so that even if these creatures did originate somewhere other than Earth, they still don't count as sapient extraterrestrials. They're just animals. Hmm. That's a little rude. They're just giant- they're just giant space whales. Yeah, okay. And- and jellyfish and eels? Uh Uh-huh, yep. Are these all sort of oceanic creatures? They tend to be in people's- conception of them. Okay. It's unclear whether that's just because, like, that's the closest thing we have to compare it to, and so that's naturally how people replicate them in their mind, mm-hmm. or if that is, you know, just a naturally occurring phenomenon. Yeah. I I have to say, specifically about cephalopods and about jellyfish, that those are both things that I look at, and specifically looked at at the aquarium on Monday, but I look at, and, and my brain sees that and thinks, that is not an animal. That is for sure an alien. That is not yeah. a thing that I know how to parse. That is not a thing that is familiar in any possible way. Um, mm-hmm. This guy at the aquarium at the touch tank where the moon jellyfish were was talking about how he loves moon jellies and jellyfish in general because he's like, how can this be an animal that doesn't have a brain 
or a heart or any discernible way of thinking, but it exists and is, and there's just sort of nerve impulses floating uh-huh. around. Yeah. With these impossibly delicate, like the ones that have tentacles, a lot of the time, they're so delicate and fine and they don't look like part of a living thing. Mm-hmm. When you talk about something being kind of ethereal and being um, translucent and not quite delicate, I think of jellyfish. For sure. And that's a great way to think of it. Um, It's worth noting that I actually used to be really, really, really into biology. In high school, I had like a really intense biology program and I went through like AP Bio and I did this like summer biotechnology camp. And I um, I actually, in my junior year, I was a national semifinalist in the uh, United States Biology Olympiad which is a fun fact. Okay. Yeah, right? So I was, like, very into bio at one point, and my biology Mm -hmm. teacher was just incredible. He was phenomenal. And we did, like, a million billion dissections in class. And it was fun because at the end of the year, we, um, after we'd already taken our AP exam, there was still some school left, but there was effectively no point to continuing the AP bio curriculum because we'd all gotten fives on the exam. So we literally just had free days where we brought in snacks and did, like, dissections that were left over. Oh, my God. (laughs) So we just did dissections for fun. And we did, like squid dissections and i don't know if you've ever dissected a squid it's kind of a wild experience i didn't do most of the dissections in school i did not do well with those Mm -hmm. i got nauseous very easily i am familiar a little bit with what would happen if you dissect a squid i know there's like an ink an ink gland of some sort there is you can write with it after you've dissected it it's very strange oh my god alex yeah it's really weird okay i I do want to say quickly also that i used to be terrified of jellyfish they're terrifying i used to be so so scared of jellyfish particularly because of an animal planet series i don't know if anyone listening watched this if you did tweet at me i don't i want to commiserate called the most extreme i don't know this it was basically a tv version of a listicle it was a top 10 counting down from 10 to 1 and one would be the most extreme in one category nice actually one of my fears one of my greatest fears of all time uh started uh, from <laughs> the most extreme that was, I think, about the uh, deadliest animals to people. And I think that number one was parasitic worms, which is where that all started. But on the list was the box jellyfish. Mm-hmm. And they had pictures and video of the wounds that would be left on people by box jellyfish. Oh, God, that's no good. That's no good. Yeah, box jellyfish, if you don't know and you're listening, are, I believe, the most deadly variety of jellyfish if not the most they are the most common to affect people uh there are often off the coast of australia and basically they the the stings of them look like they're welts they look like burns um they're horrifying yeah and they and they kill people pretty quickly fortunately it can't penetrate even like a thin fabric so actually lifeguards in the parts of australia where they're prevalent will wear like nylon stockings to protect their legs mm-hmm. if they need to go rescue someone from one because the venom can't penetrate the nylon. So I didn't know that. That's very interesting. It's a fun fact. Uh, but <laughs> I watched that when I was about eight years old. And then every year after that, when my family went to the beach, I would check the temperature of the water and only go in if the water was cold enough that jellyfish would not be drawn to it. 
Interesting. Have you ever seen a jellyfish like on the beach in person before? I have. I actually found a dead cannonball jellyfish on the beach when I was a kid and I poked it with a stick. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've found several on the beaches in my time. I don't know what kind they were. I was too little to like really care about that. But we did mm-hmm. like find one at one point and like picked it up and like put it in a plastic cup and kept it in our hotel room for the rest of the beach vacation because it was just so interesting to look at. Oh, yeah, they're bizarre. And I also know for a fact that at one point in time, my mom has eaten jellyfish, like has had it prepared somewhere. And I asked her about, I asked her to describe the texture and she said it was like a water chestnut. Interesting. They're crunchy. I did not ever count on that being true. I think it would probably depend on the variety, but I have never, it's been, I don't know if I even remember when she told me that. I have never forgotten the detail of a jellyfish being like a water chestnut. Yeah, that's wild. Uh, Let's get back to the less troubling matter of atmospheric beasts. Apologies for the tangent, but also not really. Okay, yes. Tell me more about the sky creatures. Yeah. So generally, atmospheric beasts are thought of as being very cloud-like. There is some speculation just based on the disparity between certain accounts that they can probably change their density. And so the way they would do that, I think, is like by spreading themselves very thin and becoming very airy and Mm cloud-like, or by contracting themselves, at which point they appear more metallic in color. When you say expanding and contracting, I'm going to need a little bit more detail on that. What exactly do you mean? I don't actually know. Basically, the, the issue here is that there is some... There's a lot of discussion of atmospheric beasts and encounters and sightings as basically looking like clouds or patches of fog. And there are other sightings that describe them as having a more tangible, visible shape and outline. Mm -hmm. So the speculation is that they can, like, rearrange their molecules is not the right word, but effectively, like, alter their density. Okay, now here's the thing. By spreading themselves out or, yeah. Here's the thing. This is I I don't want to go on too many marine biology tangents here, especially since I am in no way an expert. This is all little bits of trivia I've cobbled together from various podcasts and Animal Planet specials, but it's not too out of out of the like acceptable realm of possibility to talk about uh, cuttlefish and how they're able to rearrange their cells to change their color and blend in with anything around them. And I was just thinking if things appear to be cloud-like or fog-like, it's reminding me of cuttlefish and other cephalopods that have the ability to essentially rearrange the color cells in their skin Mm -hmm. instinctively. Yeah, that's a fascinating theory. I hadn't really thought about it in that terminology, but that's pretty cool. I just, they're also fascinating. I, the, the marine biologist I heard it from, I wish I could remember her name. It's on the Squids episode of Ologies, the Alley Word podcast. And she specifically said the closest comparison to how the cells work in the skin of an animal like that is they're like pixels in an LED TV screen. Yeah, I, I actually, I did know that about the squids rearranging their color cells. I had not thought about it in this context, and that's very fascinating to me. Oh, yeah. The idea that, like, maybe what we're seeing isn't actually, like, the outline of this creature expanding and contracting itself. It's just, like, a patch on some much larger, incomprehensible thing uh-huh. being arranged into <laughs> ways that are, like, visible to us. That's really wild and kind of blowing my brain a little bit. That's a little scary. I don't know if I feel good about it. In any case, yeah. In any case, they sometimes become so large and cloud-like that they almost become invisible, or at least, like, translucent, transparent, like like a cloud, like you would be able to see through one. Uh, in some reports, they glow, which is not... I'm sorry, glow? Glow, yes. Bioluminescence. Okay, yes, I'm here. 
I'm in. Yes, every single part of this is going to be a deep sea analogy. I told you this. Yeah, I know. I just, you were right that I would like this. This is true. I, I both like this and am unnerved by it. And that is a very good sweet spot to be in for this show. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, atmospheric beasts may roughly resemble whales and are sometimes called air whales or cloud beasts. Star whales. A lot. Star whales. A lot of people think that the atmospheric beast's normal habitat is like way up in the in the stratosphere uh-huh. and that that's where they just sort of naturally live and are naturally acclimated and that if one of them were ever to touch the ground, they would die. I don't know what they justify that on, but that's a thought. Do we know? And I'm sure you might be getting to this later, so I'm sorry if I'm messing up your order, but... How do they survive? What do they eat? There is, yeah, there is some thought about that. It's a big field of we don't know. It's basically like all we have are certain speculations from certain schools of thought of different people over the years. Mm-hmm. But we will get to that in just a moment. Totally. I just wanted to, I, I, I wanted to immediately ask if they photosynthesize, but that's not okay. So. At this point, you're probably thinking, like, well, how do we know those aren't just clouds? They just sound like clouds. They do sound like clouds. Atmospheric beasts, however, may engage in behavior that is thought to be impossible for a real cloud, which is a great sentence, such as squirting a stream of horizontal water at people through lips, or being far (gasps) too mobile and animate for witnesses to believe it was just a patch of fog. Oh, The more solid varieties of atmospheric beasts may have discernible mouths, eyes, flippers, and other features, but these body parts are generally arranged and shaped in a fashion that looks utterly alien. More like an ocean invertebrate's body plan than any animal we are used to seeing on a daily basis. Oh, wow. The next time I see a cloud that looks like an octopus, I'm going to lose my mind. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? So here's where it starts to get even a little bit more wild. Okay. It is said that when atmospheric beasts die, they fall to Earth as a gelatinous mass that may resemble a green, purple, gray, or iridescent jelly that evaporates into nothing within minutes, hours, or at the longest, a few days. This is supposed to explain a type of actually very real anomalous event called Poudrissaire uh-huh. that puzzled scientists for quite some time before they decided that Poudrissaire just didn't exist. Poudrissaire is Welsh for rot from the stars. It's also, call- it's also called star jelly in some accounts or some historical sources. Mm. Uh, or gelatinous meteorites is another thing they call it. And reports of it come from around the world, not just to Wales. Wow. Now that itself, Poudrissaire is like a real phenomenon that has existed. And when people say that it doesn't exist anymore or they've decided it doesn't exist, what they mean is they've decided that it doesn't, like it's not star jelly. But for a long time, that was kind of a prevailing thought that this mysterious like jelly-like substance that people would just find in fields that would then dissipate, like Mm -hmm. they were very confused by that. And this was one explanation for it. I've Google imaged star jelly. Uh-huh. And What'd it does look a little bit like, I can't remember the, oh, it looks a bit like a slime mold. So again, I don't know why I've decided to put my skeptic hat on today. I just wanted to point out. I don't know. You've been doing that a lot lately. I don't know why. I guess, I, I'm, I don't know what happened to me. I don't know if I got like bitten by a dude on the internet and now I'm turning into a devil's advocate, but I just, I think, I guess I just like considering the weird science aspect of it as well. There is a lot of really fun, weird science for this one. And like slime molds, I actually do kind of love. I think they're super weird and interesting. And every time I see one in the wild, I'm just kind of like, that is freaky. And I want to look at it and poke it with a stick. Mm -hmm. 
Slime molds, to me, live in a similar world where they don't seem like a real thing, I think. and they Have make you me seen very... one in the wild before? I have. Yeah, they're really interesting. It was orange. Yeah, okay. I've seen some bright pink ones before, and those are really weird, too. Oh, my God. That's just me at this point. I have pink hair right now. I'm just a pink slime mold oozing along the streets of Los Angeles. You're just a slime mold? I don't think so. Now, I actually did have an article already pulled up that is, you know, discounting Pudrasair as being atmospheric beasts in like nonsense so you actually didn't even have to do me dirty like that i was gonna do it to myself (laughs) i'm sorry no it's fine um but i pulled up this article from a website called college of curiosity which talks about pudrasera the star jelly Uh uh-huh and it's actually a really cool little article i'll read some of it uh because this does go into explanation of like what it might scientifically be but it just starts by saying The skies have always been a source of wonder for us, and even though we understand that the stars are not fixed points of light on a firmament, we can still startle at the thought that some of the light we're seeing left its origin when dinosaurs still roamed the Earth. But the sky has also been a source of concern and a bit of a scapegoat of sorts. There is no coincidence between the words aster, meaning star, and disaster, meaning great tragedy. It was once believed that the appearance of a comet told of some horrible thing in the offing. Mark Twain must have been amused by this, having been born when Halley's Comet appeared in the Missouri sky, and then dying the very next time it came back, 76 years later. Oh my god. Which, which if you didn't know, is a true thing about Mark Twain, and I it's really wild. Mm-hmm. I love that. Okay. <laughs> One other thing blamed on the stars is the Welsh idea of putrasair, which literally translates to rot or excrement of the stars. It's also known as star jelly. Legend tells of stars falling to the ground and exuding a jelly that caused illness. Belief in this strange substance was so common that poems were written about it, such as this one. And this is the reason I'm reading you this article, yeah. really, because it's got this great poem in it. Give me the poem. As he whose quicker eye doth trace a false star shot to a marketplace, does run apace, and thinking it to catch, a jelly up do snatch. Snaps, snaps, snaps. If you can't hear, I'm doing snaps. That poem was written by John Suckling, the inventor of cribbage. What? Thank you, John. (laughs) Thank you, John. This poem, by far, your greatest achievement. (laughs) Better than cribbage. I don't even fully know what cribbage is. Don't explain (laughs) it to me. I don't want to know. It's fine. Okay. Uh, And while it may seem crazy to us, these people were finding jelly in the fields, often after a meteor shower. In fact, they're still reported today, and not only in Wales. We know that stars are burning gas and that falling stars are actually bits of rock incandescing as they enter Earth's atmosphere, and neither of these seems like a particularly hospitable environment for jelly. So what explains this? It turns out there may be more than one answer. So basically, it goes on how to talk about that, like, these things were often associated with meteor showers and falling stars, and that those things are themselves fairly cyclical. And so what is likely happening is that it just so happens that conditions that are right for these jellies to appear are also some of the same conditions that cyclically appear when these other phenomena are taking place. Mm. Things like uh, cyanobacteria that produce amounts of jelly when exposed to water, like morning dew, could explain this. Because there are bacteria that do that when exposed to moisture, they would produce this jelly-like substance. Um, crystal head is a type of fungus with a jelly-like appearance. Mm, okay. Slime slime molds are mentioned. There they are, my guys. And okay. um, there are two that are a little bit worse. <laughs> um. So I apologize in advance. Frog spawn, the reproductive medium of okay, female frogs, I mean, 
is often ingested and regurgitated by birds and other animals. That's not really as bad as I thought it would be, which I don't know what that says about the stuff we've talked about on this show before. Or uh-huh. regurgitated frog organs. Oh. Some, some oviducts of amphibians <laughs> swell when they encounter water. Foxes, raccoons, and birds may eat a hibernating frog and regurgitate this part. No! <laughs> Ew! And then this this article concludes with like a very shady statement, which I equal parts like love and kind of roll my eyes at. There are also paranormal explanations, but these tend to be incurious and unnecessary. We live in a world where <sighs> burning metals fall from the sky and microscopic organisms form balls of jelly. There's plenty of real stuff to be curious about. Oh my god. Okay, but okay, now I've switched. That just switched me. I switched to the other side again. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm a switch hitter today. Only fair, just considering everything about me as a human being. So I've changed back to the supernatural side because uh-huh. I don't like their tone. And <laughs> pretty rude. How do you know that that jelly isn't cosmic bird poop? I mean, it's possible. Fallen from the cosmic cloaca, a phrase I've wanted to say for the last 10 minutes. Really? <laughs> I'm amazed you held out that long. I forget about the word cloaca and then I remember it and it always makes me laugh. So that's where we're at. Good to know. Let's switch over to another page then, since we're switching tone anyway. I think you will enjoy this one from thegoblinuniverse.com. Oh, okay. The Goblin Universe carries in its banner a quote that says, and I quote, If you see me disappearing down a mental rabbit hole from time to time, you will know where I am headed. I am traveling unwillfully into the Goblin Universe. And then the Twilight Zone theme music starts playing. Exactly. Welcome to the scary door. I would like to take a day trip to the Goblin Universe. The Goblin Well, we're going there right now, so strap in. I didn't buy a ticket. You don't need one. Okay. (laughs) All right. So, let's talk about some sightings. Oh my god, yes, please. Now, we did already talk about the Crawfordsville monster, but let's go over the details of this sighting and how it occurred. Mm -hmm. An eel with an eye in its mouth. (laughs) Yeah, it's horrible. During September of 1891, a story in the Indianapolis Journal was published about two men who were working on a wagon late the previous night. These men claimed to have seen a horrible apparition, propelling itself with several pairs of fins circling a house nearby. They claimed it was headless and rectangular, that swam no less than 100 feet above them and estimated its size to be 8 feet wide and 20 feet in length. What was first dismissed as a couple of drunkards was then proved, quote-unquote, true by a Methodist pastor and his wife who also saw the creature. A group of onlookers also reported feeling its hot breath the next night. They noticed a cyclopic flaming red eye and said the beast seemed to be wheezing and squirming in agony. Oh, God. Okay, if it didn't have a head, where was the eye? Well, the eye is, like, in between its mouth parts, right? Well, where's the mouth if it doesn't have a head? I don't understand what they mean when they say it has no head. Um, I think what they mean is that, like, there was no distinction between, like, a head and torso. Okay, thank you. That makes more sense. So more like an eel thing. When it's that headless, I'm imagining a fully just decapitated eel, but also there's an eye and a mouth and on... Oh, no, it's not decapitated. What it means is that the anatomy of this thing does not include a distinct head. Okay. Much like you might describe a worm as not having a head. Like, it's not that it's been cut off, it's just it doesn't have one. Okay, that's fair. I don't know what this is. I think I've talked about this before. I love snakes, and I I find them, like, a very interesting animal. I like holding Mm -hmm. them. I like interacting with them. I can't have a pet snake because feeding them would make me sad, but I do love meeting other people's. 
snakes. And I don't know why when you take of that, that build, that concept of a creature, mm-hmm. and you just tweak the face a little bit and put it in the ocean, I hate it. I am terrified it's they of don't eels. Have the- it's because they don't have the cute puppy mouths that snakes have. Maybe. Snakes have cute puppy mouths. And eels have nightmare maws. They do, yeah. I hate eels. I There were a couple at the aquarium on Monday, and one of them turned its head and made eye contact with me, and I felt a shiver <laughs> run through my entire body as though I, my animal like brain was telling me, get away, this thing wants you dead. I Oh, no. I don't trust them. They have dead eyes. And terrifying mouths and apparently this one had an eye inside its mouth yes but again that one is kind of um atypical of atmospheric beast sightings let's talk about some other ones i thought you meant of eels and i was like yeah alex of course it is it is somewhat atypical of eels usually they're not that big um (laughs) moving on a glowing eye inside their mouth so let's talk about scottish sighting okay yeah The tiny islands off of Scotland's Shetland archipelago are home to another kind of atmospheric monster. Remote and mist-shrouded, the islanders know the creature only as it, a cloud animal. And locals say every experience has been pleasant. (laughs) A police Mm -hmm. officer reported coming into contact with it, claiming the sensation felt like he was being wrapped in a warm blanket that smelled of mildew. The officer referred to the being as being alive and reported feeling extremely shaken after his encounter. Why was he shaken? Um, because he was sort of enveloped by a living cloud. Okay, that's fair. I just, <laughs> I like the warm blanket. I don't love mm-hmm. the mildew. Yeah. Um, getting kind of some pros and cons from this. Yeah, definitely. Tell me more about it. I don't mean to interrupt, please. No, it's okay. That's all the detail I have on this sighting from here. Do we know what it looks like? Remote and mist shrouded. It's... It, it is, feels like a patch of fog is what it looks like. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Like, so it's sort of a living patch of very dense fog. Okay, that's just a ghost. Maybe. Maybe it's the ghost of a star whale. Oh my god. Don't say that. I'll start crying. Maybe these things don't have a life and death cycle like we think of it. Oh my gosh. Maybe they just transition forms. Maybe they metamorphosize into... Maybe. I don't know if it's metamorphose or metamorph... I, I, don't, I can't speak. Maybe they undergo metamorphosis and become a cloud being. Possibly. I think I've just discovered my new religion. Oh, no. Uh, let's talk about one more f- uh, sighting, or rather description of a uh, chain of sightings, and then that will lead us into something else I want to talk about real quick before we run out of time here. Okay, absolutely. And then after we're done, I do need to go out and buy a white button-down and a tie and go door-to-door at people's houses asking if they've heard the good word of the star whale. Hi, have you heard the good word of the star whale ghost? <laughs> Is the Holy Spirit here among us even now? Okay. Okay. Uh, March 11th, 2011, a huge earthquake occurs off the coast of Tohoku, Japan, causing a devastating tsunami that battered the Japanese coast, left thousands dead or homeless, and damaged the Fukushima nuclear power plant. I remember Leading to one of the worst nuclear disasters the world has ever seen. Yeah, I remember it. It was terrible. It was in the news cycle for months. Mm Mm-hmm. In the months following this tragic event, there were countless reports of strange, unexplained objects in the skies about the areas devastated. The second largest atmospheric disturbance, the Sumatran earthquake and tsunami of 2004, was also accompanied by an increase in UFO and strange sightings. Now, the reason this is significant is because there is another article that I read 
which discussed the possibility that atmospheric beasts navigate in a way that is kind of similar to some other creatures that have uh, basically readings on like the Earth's magnetic fields and interact with their environment and navigate by using a sort of uh, rudimentary sonar. And that when earthquakes occur, it like before the earthquake happens, it causes a massive disruption in these kinds of things. There's like an electromagnetic pulse almost mm-hmm. that is generated. And so that part of the reason we see so many of these creatures increase in activity right before and after these events is because their navigational systems get disrupted and it causes them to drop closer to the earth. Oh, oh, I like that. Yeah, really fascinating. I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. I really love when, and I mean this genuinely, I don't hope this doesn't come across as condescending because I mean this with all the love and genuine sentiment in my heart. I love when people apply in-depth scientific principles to something that has absolutely no evidence like this. And you see it a lot with stuff like that. And I do not mean that in a condescending way. I mean that it's, I love that level of deep thought, Um, just the amount of time and care spent with that to come up with an explanation for why sightings of atmospheric beasts would increase around natural disasters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I also just kind of like the idea that these, as far as I can tell, gentle giants appear uh, in places that are disaster stricken, not on purpose, but they end up there because they're lost. And I just, Mm -hmm. something about that feels very soft. And it's really fascinating. Something about that feels very soft and Studio Ghibli to me. It's really is kind of whimsical in a way that I really enjoy. A lot of the like, I don't want to say fan art, a lot of the artist renderings of these things Mm -hmm. are kind of mysterious and murky and strange and, like, ominous. But there's also a whole field of renderings of these things that are very sort of pastel, that are rendered in these very gentle and, like, ethereal ways. Mm -hmm. And I really kind of love them a lot. I have this image in my head that is weirdly doing, like, it's it's having an emotional effect on me, and I don't know what exactly that Mm -hmm. is or where that's coming from, but I have this image of, I think this is what I'm going to imagine when I want to go to sleep tonight because it makes me feel so at peace of like sort of semi-translucent sky blue jellyfish just sort of ambulating gently through the clouds. And it's so beautiful and soft. (laughs) (laughs) That's not incorrect or necessarily unpopular as a theory. So according to mysteriousuniverse.org, The appearances of these atmospheric beasts vary widely, which we've already discussed. It then goes on to say that accounts have variously described them as amorphous and cloud-like behemoths, finned squid-like creatures, Mm -hmm. floating jellyfish, translucent vaporous blobs, flitting rods, amoeba-like organisms, gelatinous oddities, and even dragons. Oh, wow. The the size, well, like the Crawfordsville monster that we talked about. Yeah. The sizes of atmospheric beasts likewise run the gamut from tiny and bird-like to gargantuan monsters hundreds of feet long. Although these enigmatic creatures are said to typically lurk too high in the atmosphere or to be too insubstantial to see with the naked eye, there are instances when one might become observable for some reason. And then it goes on to say that, you know, indeed, there have been a lot of sightings all over the years that, like, don't necessarily fit into other cryptids that describe these sort of phenomena. Um, On some occasions, they've even allegedly been photographs. And then it talks a little bit about star jelly. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, there is such a variation in the appearance of these things. And that sort of jellyfish kind of theme is actually very prevalent in a lot of discussion Mm -hmm. of these. That's what resonates with me. So I think I'm going to speak my truth and uh, stick with the jellyfish. 
Yeah, if that's the if that's the truth, if the, the atmospheric beasts are uh, letting you channel through them as their <laughs> prophet, I think that you should absolutely follow it. I should clarify that I am almost a hundred percent not going to turn this into a weird religion, but also maybe there's like a point oh one percent that I might. So we're just it's possible so stay tuned folks we're gonna live in that 0.01 percent for a little while longer and just sort of revel in the discomfort of not knowing but absolutely also i feel like i would be remiss i don't remember you were not a youth who watched avatar the last airbender correct no i'm aware of it but i just didn't okay. watch it growing up that's totally fair we should sit down and watch it at some point i really do think you would love a lot of things about it i also but believe that i would also i would be remiss if i did not mention appa Mm-hmm. The flying bison. Yeah. You're right. All of them, all of these things are actually just flying bison. Yeah, who is a very big, very soft, large flying animal that would probably appear somewhat cloud-like from his fluffiness from the ground. Mm-hmm. And I just think that it is worth considering <laughs> flying bison. I think that's absolutely possible. I'm also very concerned now, um, not so much for the ones that don't have as much of a corporeal form, but for the more solid of these friends, I'm very worried about things like airplanes yeah. affecting them. How far up are they? Are they above airplane zone? So or are it, they... really, it really depends. Um, let's talk a little bit more about their navigation and then okay. we'll, we'll wrap up because we have some annou- announcements to make at the end of this true. episode. True, true, true. So talking about... If these creatures exist, they perhaps use some sort of navigation system to maintain their bearings and find their way. This in and of itself is not so far-fetched. We know that many animals, especially those that regularly migrate, use various biological systems to navigate and hone in on their destinations. Salmon! Okay. We also know that these systems can be disrupted by either natural or artificial means. Artificial lighting is well known to cause disorientation in a variety of migrating animals, such as sea turtles and birds. Sonar can have effects on whales, and radar has been shown to somehow throw off the navigational abilities of certain birds as well, perhaps because it disrupts their innate magnetic compass. Since known animals can certainly have their instinctual navigational abilities disrupted, it is certainly plausible that the proposed atmospheric organisms could suffer similar pitfalls. It then goes on to talk about how that is a likely reason for these things to drop lower in the atmosphere, and then for us to connect those with UFO sightings. There is actually a school of belief that all UFO sightings have just been atmospheric beasts. Because pretty much any time you get into any sort of corner of cryptozoology, there are like niches within that niche, and this is one of them. So there are some people who are UFO truthers in that they think that all UFOs are actually giant sky whales. Oh, that's great. Which I kind of love. I do have to reinvoke my favorite internet quote that I see that I've seen about UFOs, which is just anything is a UFO if you're bad at identifying things. True that. Anyway, uh, this person then goes on to talk about how they actually were living in Japan during the 2011 earthquake and can verify the fact that these like sightings increased dramatically just prior to, during and after the earthquake. This piqued the author's interest, and after further investigation, they found that spikes in the UFO activity were consistently reported before and during the before and during. Can't talk today. The 2011 earthquake and tsunami of Japan, the Sumatran earthquake and tsunami of 2004, the Haitian earthquake of 2010, and the Philippine earthquake of 2013, which seems to imply some possible connection between the seismic activity and UFOs that could, at least in the case of earthquakes, possibly have a cryptozoological basis in the form of the hypothetical atmospheric beasts. 
That's amazing. Yeah, when a large earthquake occurs, there is more going on than just the shaking of the ground or the creation of tsunamis, because earthquakes generate an enormous amount of surface motion, which is then released as powerful waves into the atmosphere called seismo-traveling ionospheric disturbances. These waves can penetrate all the way up into the highest parts of the atmosphere, which are known as the ionosphere, if you didn't know that. All earthquakes produce these disturbances to some degree, but in the case of very major earthquakes, they can be extremely profound. And it just so happens that that 2011 earthquake in Japan produced one of the most massive such atmospheric disturbances ever recorded. It created waves of large amounts of electrically charged particles traveling 720 to 800 kilometers per hour, which oh is up God. to about 500 miles per hour. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> that, that reached up to around 220 miles above the Earth, which is pretty crazy. That is unbelievable. I mean, it is believable. You know what I mean? Oh, it's, yeah, totally. That is, it's difficult to comprehend sort of an invisible consequence like that from an mm -hmm, earthquake. Definitely. I suppose. I also, <laughs> this is not me playing devil's advocate again. We're not doing that anymore. This is just me wanting to bring up another kind of out there consideration. Uh -huh. And it's something that comes up a lot when you talk about aliens. And someday when I do my episode on the greys, which is coming at some point in time, I have to get my act together research-wise and really narrow down because there is so much stuff. But People do like to bring up the idea of if you believe in multiple dimensions, mm -hmm. there being some sort of rift or sort of thinning of the veil through which these things either cross or are seen. And I do think that it is not too out there when we're already playing with our notion of what is reasonable and realistic to assume that things that appear sort of non-corporeal or ethereal or translucent might not actually technically be physically there, but almost like you're spotting them through a thinner veil between dimensions or... That's also certainly possible. Yeah. As far as, yeah, as far as this theory about um, seismic waves go, we do know for a fact that they do disrupt radio signals and other things like that, because that's actually how scientists measure them. Mm -hmm. So if you're going with this idea that like natural beings can have their inherent navigational abilities thrown off, like that's provably true, which is an interesting theory. Like you were talking about, I love when people apply this level of like scientific thinking to things that are totally in the theoretical. Um, and while I do love transdimensional theory, I think it's super fascinating and I choose actively to believe in it. This is interesting to me specifically because this is one of those cryptids that goes into like, that so many people use such legitimate science to talk about. And it's so fascinating that way. Absolutely. Also, you mentioned the disruption of radio, radio signals um, and communications. I have another fun thing. Just another, I'm truly just spitballing. I am saying yes and to every idea that pops into my head right now. Um, consider talking about UFOs that these aren't actually sentient creatures, but are actually some sort of spacecraft. And the reason more of them appear around a, size, a large amount of seismic activity is because the uh, cloaking mechanisms are disrupted by the uh, disruption of radio waves and become more oh, visible. Oh, certainly possible. Now, one thing that you mentioned earlier uh, that I wanted to kind of save for the end, and but I did to promise we would circle back around to, is you were asking what these things eat. What do they eat? And so yes. that is a fascinating question because it's kind of been unanswered for so long. Now, there are people who throughout history have thought that these things descend to the earth and feed on earth creatures, right? 
But mm. that's kind of improbable. And the author of this Mysterious Universe article posits that perhaps there is instead, like, an entire ecosystem up where they are existing. It wouldn't make any sense for creatures to adapt to an ecosystem under such specific conditions and then feed in an entirely different ecosystem. That doesn't really work. So yeah. they hypothesize that perhaps there is some sort of sky plankton to go along with these sky whales. And Ooh. on that note, I would like to finish up by telling you something, frankly, kind of buck wild. Okay. Which is that, as of 2014, there was living sea plankton on the outside of the International Space Station. No. Yep. No. Uh-huh. Oh my god, no, stop it. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Where did you read that? Where did you find that? So this was um, sorted in a few other places, but actually... Uh, this linked to another Mysterious Universe article directly, but cites, like, the astronauts who discovered it in the article. Oh my god. Oh my god. Space plankton. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Russian cosmonauts Oleg, Arte Oleg Artemyev and Alexander Skvortsov were on a routine spacewalk to launch nanosatellites when they noticed some dirt on the outside of the Russian side of the space station and on a window called an illuminator. They used wipes to clean the surfaces and a later analysis of the microscopic particles identified them as sea plankton and other microorganisms. Oh my god! <laughs> this is making... <laughs> I have goosebumps. That's so exciting. And the sea plankton is not indigenous to the area where the Russian launches took place. So the thought was originally that it was on the modules when they launched and that those creatures just survived up there because microorganisms can survive in all sorts of bizarre right. circumstances. But apparently this kind of plankton is not indigenous to that area. So who was plankton? <laughs> now, and before I get, you know, come at by people in the comments, the thought on this, the theory is that somehow updrafts um, or launches from other various parts contained these particles and then they spread up there. So, you know, it's not implausible that things could have uh, come from updrafts or these massive disruptions in the atmosphere causing things that were already in the air to be jettisoned out into space and then attached to the surface. However, the fact that they can exist out there is interesting, okay? So that's like the main idea here, right? It's not like where the plankton came from, it's the idea that there are plankton living in space. That's a cute explanation and all, but it's definitely space plankton for the space whales. It's definitely space plankton for the space whales. Man, you've really done a full 180 on this one, haven't you? I have. I went on a really good, I, I went on a really transformative journey today. I really I feel like- I was really happy to be here for your spiritual awakening. Yeah, it was really beautiful. I got back in touch with the core of myself and opened my mind and my heart to the great star whale in their everlasting love. May they sing through you forever. Exactly. Um, may I never unhear their whale song ringing through the cosmos. So also I am real but quick, a plankton on the underbelly of the great star whale. So also, real quick, mm -hmm. um, I would like to make one correction to the information you've shared. I actually am pretty sure that I know what the uh, atmospheric beasts eat. Okay, what do they eat? Um, they eat a peanut butter and star jelly sandwich. God, you're so right. Except that's kind of messed up, considering star jelly comes from dead atmospheric beasts. I just wanted to make the really, I just wanted to make the joke. Cannibalism's not a joke, Addison. <laughs> um, are you sure? All right. <laughs> well, oh uh, man. 
Uh, well, I think that'll do it for Atmospheric Beasts. There's a ton of other stuff to touch on. We didn't even get into air rods, which are their whole thing, but that means we can bring it back for a later episode. So, uh, what do you Gotta think? Gotta keep the people <laughs> guessing. Sorry, what? Oh, I just said, so, uh, what do you think? I know you gave us your, like, intimate spiritual reaction to this thing, but just, like, yeah. on a surface level, like, how do you feel about the Atmospheric Beasts? I feel really good about them. I think they're very interesting. I like this entire new potential ecosystem mm-hmm. existing outside of what we can see. And I feel very similarly about that uh, to how I feel about the deep, deep ocean, which is to say, I mean, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and this is, and I'm going to preface this by saying that this is a comedy podcast. If you listen to our disclaimer that we put at the beginning of every single episode, things here are not to be taken as serious sources of science. And even if I personally believe a thing to be true based on flawed memory that I have from a high school, I don't need you telling me how incorrect it is. So that having been said... I think this is among the more plausible cryptids that we've talked about. I think so, too. Also, my personal disclaimer, I have a musical theater degree. (laughs) I I can tell you a lot of facts about the history of vaudeville, but that doesn't mean I am qualified to dispense science information. Nor do we pretend to. Exactly. But I, I do really like them. I also like kind of the idea of, and this isn't something we necessarily got too deep into, but I like the idea of perhaps a sentient being that is not does not have a corporeal form the way we think about it and that might be consist consisting of a material that is not so solid yes or at the very least be partially consisting of that that is an idea that has fascinated me to the utmost since i read the andromeda strain by michael creighton in high school um Mm -hmm. and i this is a very like sphere topic actually but it's also a very good andromeda strain topic just in terms of like atmospheric Mm -hmm. beasts uh, so check both of those books out if you've never read them. I love I've some of the weirder writings of Michael Crichton. They're very fascinating. But um, anyway, on that note, it is like so interesting, the idea that if we were to ever actually see an alien, we probably wouldn't recognize it as an alien because we're looking for a specific kind of thing that like matches our definition of what life looks like. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when we visualize aliens... We visualize them as, like, being super weird, but still adhering to a definition of life that is very human-centric, right? So if we ever actually encountered an extraterrestrial with a quote-unquote intelligent society, we probably wouldn't know what we were looking at. We probably wouldn't recognize it as an intelligent life form. We might think it was a cloud. Yeah, or also, um, I'm going to just go ahead and make a really wild take to round this episode out and say... Let's do it. Slime molds and star jelly are the same thing, but they're not slime molds that we think they are. They are, in fact, extraterrestrials, fully sentient, and they just don't have the way to communicate with us because they communicate psychically in their slimes. And they've been trying to talk to us for a long, long time, and we just haven't been ready to hear what they have to say. Look, I would believe it. I get some very strong energy from slime molds. <laughs> they make me nervous and I don't trust them per se, but I think that might just be my own preconceived biases. I don't know if that's necessarily reflective of their intentions. If you pointed at a slime mold and you said that thing's trying to talk to you, I'd believe it. <laughs> <laughs> if you just, yeah, just bring me a slime mold in a container and say, this is an alien. And I would say, yes. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> They're is a Goosebumps book. I'm so sorry. There is a Goosebumps book called Egg Monsters from Mars. And to be completely honest, the said egg monsters from Mars in that book do not sound dissimilar to slime molds. 
Interesting. Anyway, that's my extremely out of left field take to round out the episode. Slime molds are aliens. Tell your friends, or maybe don't if you want them to keep talking to you. But <laughs> I think it's a perfectly wonderful take, and I'm totally on board with it. Thank you. Um, so some announcements. Oh yes. For everyone out there at home. We recently finished revamping our Patreon. So if you are a Patreon donor, past or present, please go ahead and take a look at your Patreon page. Some of our tiers have shifted around a little bit. Nothing bad, just making sure that we are distinguishing the content that we give to our donors at various levels. And so you may find that there are some new things to look forward to. You may find that uh, the things that you have access to now are slightly different than they were. Everything's basically just a little bit more codified, makes a little bit more sense. And in addition to that, we are kind of doing like an unofficial Patreon drive right now, which is just to say that we've put up a new stretch goal. And when we get to, I'm going to say when and not if, because I believe in you all. Yes. When we get to our uh, $1,000 a month donor tier, we will officially plan our first Cryptid Keeper live show. So help make CryptidCon 2019 happen. CryptidCon is probably already a thing. Yeah. Help us make Cryptid Keeper live show 2019 happen. Uh, get on the pledge train with us. Join us for some fun, weird bonus content. There is so much interesting stuff coming down the pipeline for you guys. We're going to start doing monthly recommendations of like genre movies and TV and like things you should be looking out for, stuff that we've enjoyed. Uh, for our higher tier patrons, we're calling it the Creepy Culture Club or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Creepy it's very Culture fun. Club. Um, I actually, thanks to one of our listeners, Gracie, big thank you to Gracie, I finally now have the ability to turn those old uh, ghost story oral history interviews I've talked about into MP3 form. I'll be uploading those for some of our donors. Um, also, we have a friend fiction series coming up, which I don't think Addison has uploaded yet, but I'm going to keep I'm holding preparing. her to it. I'm waiting for fanfiction.net to let me delete my old account. Um, <laughs> oh, no. But anyway, that'll be up for you. Uh, that's a very fun sort of journey that we took together, and I think I think we both learned a lot about ourselves. I bared my soul and opened my heart for all of you. It was beautiful. For it was really, really a wonderful time. So we have that. To quote Marina and the Diamonds, I did it for the fans. I did it for the art. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, and then, as always, we continue having new episodes, and I know the schedule hasn't been the most regular, but new episodes of A Horror Borealis uploaded for our Patreon donors of any tier. So no matter how much you're able to pledge per month, you can get on that train and get access to the entire backlog. Or if that's not your deal, you don't have the money to share with us right now, that's totally fine. You can be listening to A Horror Borealis on the One Shot Network. Yep, it's releasing from the very beginning, so about a year behind what's the schedule on our Patreon, and uh, is releasing weekly. Yeah, on Tuesdays. So that's very, yes. very exciting. We're happy to be sharing that with the world. And the response seems to have been pretty good so far. So we're glad that people out there are loving our weird little corner of the internet as much as we do. I forgot how many crunchy snacks I ate in the first one. Oh, so many. God, I'm sorry. It's before we implemented the soft snack policy. I know. Thank God they came along quickly because I was... Editing that audio has been rough. <laughs> I understand. I'm so sorry. But um, anyway, yes, we're back recording. It's now a coast-to-coast -coast show again. But it is. That's okay, because when we talk about cryptids, we're all really in it together, and we're all really in the same big space. So, Aw, that yeah. was beautiful. We're Thanks. all one in the eyes of the star whale. <laughs> <laughs> we are all one in his love, in his cosmic love. Uh Beautiful, excellent. I feel the star jelly washing over me right oh. now. 
that sounds like sensory hell. Okay. It does sound like sensory hell, doesn't it? Anyway, um, if you like what we're making here for some reason and you want to keep supporting it on Patreon, consider doing that because we have some exciting, exciting stuff coming down the line for all of you. And ex-fighting. You, we're going to fight and our ex fighting. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh, maybe. I don't know. I could definitely take them. I can, I can um, try. <laughs> if you cannot support us on Patreon at this time, or if you simply don't feel like it, that's totally fine. Please just keep sharing the love with everyone on Twitter or Facebook or wherever you choose to do so. Really, word of mouth is the biggest thing we have by far. Uh, you can send us your listener stories or your feedback of any variety at cryptkeeppod at gmail.com. We've actually gotten some really, really lovely emails in the past few months um, from people either sharing their very large cats with Addison, which has been wonderful. My boys! But also from people responding to some of the uh, the vulnerable truths that we shared on the Devil Bird episode. And I just wanted to give a big thank you to everybody. We really are very, very fortunate in that we have the honor of knowing that so many of you guys have, like, our best interests in mind, which is really, really nice. It's very easy as a content creator to feel like you're kind of shouting into the void sometimes or mm-hmm. to sometimes feel like you are under this pressure and the ex- expectation to keep producing things or your value becomes null and void and you mm-hmm. are essentially worthless in the greater creative economy. And it's really, really nice to occasionally just like hear back from that void and have that void tell you like we acknowledge that you're human beings and it's it's very lovely. So Gaze into the abyss long enough and the abyss will give you validation. We'll send you a lovely email telling you that you're enough and that's really, really nice sometimes. So mm-hmm. thank you for all of your kindness and all of your wonderful warm energy going into 2019. We hope that the year has been treating you well so far mm-hmm. and that you find all of your intentions uh, coming into blissful recognition in and this calendar year. If you do want to send us an email, you can do so at cryptkeeppod at gmail.com. That is C-R-Y-P-T-K-E-E-P-P-O-D at gmail.com. Same as our Twitter. You can also reach us on Twitter at cryptkeeppod, or you can find us on Facebook at the Cryptid Keeper Appreciation Group. It's a grand old time. Or on our actual Facebook page, The Cryptid Keeper. And those are all the places we are on the internet, I think. <laughs> I think that's just about all of it. Um, our Etsy store will be coming back online very soon. I'm waiting for a couple new pieces of merch to be finalized, but I have the designs, and oh my gosh, you guys... They are so cool. There is some great stuff coming. There are some sticker sets. There are There's a poster. Um, I've been losing it over some of this stuff. We have some sticker sets. We're going to have a new poster. Yeah, we have these beautiful postcards featuring some just beautifully illustrated art from a couple different cryptids around the world, and those are really fun, too. Um, and then we will also have our beautiful Horror Borealis diner mugs on sale when that reopens. So if you haven't seen pictures of those, uh, you should check it out. They're really, really cool. Oh, they're so good. And can confirm they have a very nice hand feel for drinking hot drinks out of. (laughs) It's exceptionally good. So I think that's everything. A big thank you, as always, to our audio wizard, Val Patrone, and to our composer, Andrew Giata. In-house composer? (laughs) You're not wrong. What are we? A music program at a conservatory? Okay. So as always, we hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there. (laughs) 